It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Programme. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll A get through it. social distancing tip. While the CDC urges you to avoid close contact, like hugging or shaking hands, there are other non-physical ways to say hello. Wave, wink, use sign language, salute, smile, give the peace sign, throw up an air high five, do jazz hands. Remember, stay a minimum of six feet or two arms length away from others and stay home if you can. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. we got a good one in store today uh, for a Thursday. Um, coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour, a debut author of uh, a uh, novel for young, uh, young adult readers uh, called Fast Fat Chance Charlie Vega by Crystal Maldonado. And Crystal will join me during the uh, third half of our three-hour tour. And we're going to talk with uh, an author of a new book called Free and Fearless. Um, his name is uh, Philip Moser. And uh, that's going to be an interesting story as well. But we start out this first hour with uh, co-authors of a book called Surmountable, How Citizens from Selma to Seoul changed the world and it's kind of author meets filmmaker but we'll find out more about that uh, because uh, joining me by phone is uh, one of the co-authors Adam um, I'll find it in my notes I've got I've gotten myself all turned around here Um, oh shoot it's right there on the book cover (laughs) Adam Manier Edwards joins me by phone Adam welcome to the show Good morning, Tom. Adam, we're also uh, hoping to be joined by uh, Brian Gruber as well, uh, your co-author in this book, Surmountable, and uh, hopefully uh, he'll join us in progress. But but let's press on. I, I was kind of looking at uh, biographies of, of you and Brian side by side, and it sort of looks like author meets filmmaker. Is that... <laughs> Uh, well, the filmmaking has kind of been on this side for me. Um, I've been a marketer, uh, for my career. Um, and I started getting into film, um, because like during the day I was focused on data. Uh, but then I also realized that you need a good story and 
uh, could create up to move people. Um, and so I started getting involved in that on the side. How did you and Brian get connected and end up uh, putting this book together? So um, I am an avid uh, Kickstarter uh, crowdfunder. So if you are not familiar with crowdfunding, uh, you can go onto a site like Kickstarter and then you can back a particular project, um, which can really range almost uh, anything from a book to a film to a board game. A radio show. Anything. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so uh, I found a book that he was working on uh, that sounded really interesting to me. It's called War the After Party. Uh, so basically, Brian traveled around the world uh, to places that we had, you know, had a military invention in, intervention in. Um, and I got to meet him throughout that process, really enjoyed the final product. We, we talked a little bit uh, throughout his journey. Um, and, you know, I had been starting to think about, uh, the kind of protests and stuff that I had seen. I've, I've lived in New York now for over 15 years. Um, and I felt like that they hadn't really achieved a lot. Um, and I wanted to get, um, the story straight from people who had protested and been successful around the world. Um, and not, it's not all entirely about protests, it's about civic engagement. Um, and I think that often gets lost. Um, they don't necessarily have to stand out in the street to make change. Um, but he was able to travel uh, for a couple of months after we, we had our own successful crowdfunding campaign. And uh, together we worked together on the narrative and uh, really happy with how it turned out. And when you say the narrative, it, it's, um, it's a narrative that weaves um, through a number of interviews for sure uh over 40 interviews um so there's um 10 domestic movements in the u.s and then three international movements um that we took a look at you know this is an interesting time to be coming out with this book and also talking about this subject because of the events of this past summer in the wake of the george floyd killing and um and of course, there there were others as well, but George Floyd yep. has sort of become um, emblematic of yep. uh, a problem that exists in the U.S. And a lot of people reacted, and a lot of people took to the streets. Um, how do you how did you how do you define number one protests and and that kind of activism, and how do you measure? success that's really one of the most important questions and i think one that a lot of people who even actually go out and protest um don't always or even organize um don't always think about um there's there's such a difference for me and even like a recent realization uh what for the difference between doing good and making a difference or changing the world. Um, anyone, anyone can uh, can do good. Um, you can you know go volunteer at your local nonprofit, but trying to make a difference and changing the world is a challenge, and it takes um, a lot of dedication to do so. And so when you're thinking about like what that means, it doesn't necessarily mean 
um, you know, standing in the street with a sign. Um, it could be something like we have one chapter on uh, a citizen named Gregory Watson, um, and he is actually practically solely responsible for the most recent uh, constitutional amendment we have. Um, uh, yeah. Adam, I want to put a comma there because we are sure. now joined by Brian Gruber, the other co-author of the book Surmountable. Brian, welcome to the show. Greetings from Thailand. <laughs> what time is it in Thailand? We didn't make you get up in the uh, middle of the night or anything, did we? No, no not, not get up. It's 9 p.m. Oh, okay. Excellent. Well, I hope we're not keeping you up. No, no, it's... Uh... It's fine. It's a pleasure to, to be here, and it's hard to be a couple of minutes late. You don't want to know why. Okay, fair enough. Um, but I, but in, in order to get you uh, caught up, um, Adam and I were just talking about how you, how you define um, protests and activism. We were sort of using as an example this past summer in the U.S. in the wake of the uh, George Floyd killing. And um, and and how you how you measure success, and we were just sort of getting started with that. If you want to weigh in a little, yeah, I think uh, uh, Adam and I had our own journey in the course of the project, both in developing the idea and then uh, doing the interviews worldwide, and then compiling information. And one fascinating dimension of what we found and what we explored uh, in the book is taking it a step back and, and look, looking at the, the notion of a citizen and the Enlightenment ideas. Uh, you know, activism, we think of uh, complaining about an issue or marching in the street or being a troublemaker or an agitator, and it can be those things. But there was uh, this core idea uh, among the, the uh, public thinkers uh, who founded our country uh, about who we are, um, you know, before you had the divine right of kings, and so people's rights resided uh, in in that that monarchy. And then with with our constitution and with the, the intellectual framework to the constitution, suddenly you have this different notion with Thomas Jefferson and the rights of man and so many uh, other thinkers at the time that uh, we uh, hold these rights within ourselves. Therefore, we have to act in a certain way uh, in order to preserve and maintain this democracy and it's this uh, sacred uh, obligation of, of a citizen to to be engaged and so in the first chapter of the book it was a tremendous education for me and and really fun to talk to uh, a madisonian scholar and, and historians and various interesting thought leaders on the subject as to what is our obligation and why do we act beyond any specific issue that we're interested in, but as Americans, as citizens, as sentient beings? Well, I'm glad, um, Brian, I'm glad you brought up the American Revolution, and it, and it causes me to, to wonder, and, and maybe you found some similarities in other causes throughout the last couple hundred years, but... Um, I'm thinking of an event like the Boston Tea Party. You know, do you consider that a success, or is that one of a number of things that ended up, you know, bringing about the the Revolutionary War? 
Well, in, in fact, there, there's lots of discussion in the book and, and lots of theory, uh, political science theory behind that. And people like uh, Kali Lassen of Adbusters, who was behind uh, Occupy, or uh, a Tunisian uh, activist who was there for the overthrow of Ben Ali and the launch of the Arab Spring, a number of other uh, social movements in the United States uh, and and overseas talk to the fact that uh, the natural flow of events is that people do stuff and it's not successful. Because we were looking, you mentioned uh, how, what's the measure of success, and we were looking for the playbook and do these things and you'll be successful. And we were educated by so many so many of the people who we spoke to and 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 visited with. That, yeah, you go for that, and if you're lucky, you get that right away uh, or get that soon, and you just keep, you know, getting singles and extra base hits, and then you get the grand slam, and, and you, you've won in the bottom of the ninth. But the way that it happens is so many events happen before, often there's actually an external event outside your control in something that Adam and I explore called the political opportunity theory. And Callie Lawson talked about that in, in terms of the of Occupy, people call it a failure. And, you know, uh, we, we explored the, the notion in the book, what was the original purpose and, and did it fail? But his point, and so many others, is that you need an Occupy uh, in order to raise consciousness on certain issues so that seven years later or 17 years later, something else happens that achieves the big goals that you're after. Well, it's like, uh, you know, a third-party uh, run for the presidency in the U.S. Very rarely do they ever rack up any real numbers. Um, now there's some arguments about them being spoilers, but very often they change the conversation. Absolutely. So while Absolutely. the campaign fact, might not be successful, there is success that comes out of it. Yeah, I mean, you look at the kind of uh, pedigree of ideas, and uh, some months before Occupy, Joe Stiglitz of Columbia University, I believe a Nobel Prize winning laureate, wrote in Vanity Fair about the 1%, and, and, and we're heading in a, in a bad and dangerous direction here. And then that mantle was taken up by Occupy, and by the way, without that mantle being taken up, several of the folks who we interviewed said, Bernie Sanders' candidacy doesn't happen without Occupy talking about those, those issues, which became the, 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 the foundation of his campaign. And lo and behold, today as we speak, Bernie Sanders, a democratic socialist, not even a member of the Democratic Party, from a tiny state of Virginia, is the chairman of the Senate Budget Committee, the committee that decides <laughs> yeah, I saw how the money. So you look at those, at those phenomena and sequence of events, and I think what happened in the book, again, as part of our education in the book that we explore and share, is um, understanding the dynamics of how these things happen. Brian, Adam, I have to take a short break here. Can you stick around? I want to talk some more about this. Of course. Of course. Okay. Um, it'll just, just be uh, a, a few minutes, and we'll be back with the co-authors of a book called Surmountable, How Citizens from Selma to Seoul Changed the World. Brian Gruber and Hello Adam right Edwards. Hello everybody, it's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs>
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Wearing a mask helps prevent the spread of COVID-19. Wear your mask correctly. Wash your hands with soap and water for at least 20 seconds before putting on your mask. Holding the ear loops or ties, make sure the mask covers your nose and mouth and secure it around your chin. Try to fit it snugly against the sides of your face. Make sure you can breathe easily and keep the mask on the entire time you're in public. To learn more, visit cdc.gov coronavirus. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. TomSumnerProgram.com TomSumnerProgram.com
Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation with the co-authors of a book called Surmountable, How Citizens from Selma to Seoul Changed the World. They are Brian Gruber and Adam Anir Edwards, and they join me both uh, by phone. Brian, Adam, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. Our pleasure. Um, I know so much more about Flint now. <laughs> um, and and you know, I was I was going to turn the conversation, and maybe we will a little bit, to some of the uh, uh, demonstrations that have gone on in Flint over the last uh, five plus years um, with regard to the municipal water crisis we had here. But how would you characterize the demonstration that that turned into a breach of the Capitol? Uh, last month huh that's a big question is it well is is it a protest a demonstration an insurgency i mean we hear insurgency a lot because it sounds scarier but what what's the difference between um demonstrating and and when violence erupts sure i'll I'll take a whack at it then adam probably would want to weigh in on that uh, as well, I mean, Great. if you, you know, if you take it, two points. Uh, if you take it from the point of view of uh, American ideology of of what the founders envisioned in the First Amendment, you know, there were five things: of course, freedom of speech and press and freedom uh, and, and and religion um, and assembly. No, no, and and the other two were freedom of assembly and the the right to petition for a redress of grievances, which uh, Todd Gitlin, uh, head of the PhD program of Columbia University and the Columbia Journalism School and former president of SDS, the uh, student organization in in the 60s, said, you know, back in England, back in the day, it meant you can actually go to the king and petition. But the whole idea is that you are asking for a redress of grievances. So the idea of protest to some degree, yeah, it's assembly because... Through, through a lot of the world, even today, and especially then, you couldn't get together and say uh, we're, we're protesting against against the government. So it was radical at the time. But the notion that you want to go through a process, uh, and and there is uh, in the in the Constitution and in our system of government with checks and balances and the courts, et cetera, and, and your congressmen and voting for uh, um, elected officials uh, in the executive branch, there is this process. To go through. So, number one, that was violated by the people who attacked, uh, and, not, and not only that, they, they specifically tried to interfere with the uh, electoral processes where people were expressing themselves through the political system as to what kind of government they wanted. The second, and we can spend a lot more time on that, the second dimension of it was that through the book, virtually all of the protests, and I can't think of one that was not, but virtually all are nonviolent, and we talk about the roots of nonviolent protest. That that even Gandhi got his uh, a lot of his uh, ideas and, and opinions on, on the notion of protest from the Pankers, who were uh, a mother and daughter uh, who were leading the fight for women's suffrage in 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 England around the turn of the century, uh, about uh, um, 1907, 1908. Then. So nonviolence is, a, is an absolutely critical part for many reasons, not just be nice, don't hurt people, uh, but, but as a kind of almost spiritual 
ideology that you will uh, even be willing to put your body on the, on the line. You are willing to uh, uh, accept a certain amount of personal suffering because uh, you believe in something so fiercely. So because of those two things, what happened was an abomination, was an actual uh, brutal and historic violation of the notions of nonviolent protest and of getting things done. It was a, it was a, a uh, fascist insurrection that was hoping for a military coup, which is just diametrically opposed to the founders' vision for America. Adam, did you want to weigh in as well? <laughs> Brian said it well, uh, but I'll just add that. <laughs> he, he did, and I know that, that that puts a little pressure on you, but I thought you it's might a hard act to follow. Add a um, but, but I'll just say that, um, you know, it's people were unhappy, and then they were uh, led to that with disinformation. And we've seen what can uh, come from that. Uh, we have a chapter in the book on Ukraine, um, and if you're not familiar with what happened, uh, in the Ukraine recently, look up the phrase Euro Maidan, um, and you can see that there was a lot of Russian disinformation that was trying to uh, convince people to go uh, closer to Russia when the people had all uh, voted previously to to join the EU, and you know the people there stood up uh, peacefully and were able to um, you know make a change. And so I think we need a lot of media literacy uh, in this country because we need to start distinguishing this as technology gets better, as social media um, becomes more a part of our lives. Um, you need to, you know, really think about um, the news that you're, uh, you know, intaking. How does the the notion that was promoted by uh, Donald Trump and and some of his followers and and others as well. Um, this this notion of uh, fake news and alternative facts. How does that jeopardize um, the ability of media to share news and information? That sounds very Orwellian, doesn't it? Um. It's, uh, it's a problem because um, people are increasingly skeptical and cynical, and that kind of talk preys upon that. Um, you know, I was just talking yesterday, there, there's a big um, move in the news uh, industry where, like, the Chicago Tribune and other newspapers were acquired um, by this hedge fund. And, you know, there's been a real minimizing of the diverse voices um, in this country. And you've seen that, like, within local TV channels, uh, increasingly owned by, you know, fewer and fewer uh, companies. And, you know, it gets people to be skeptical, and it gets people to turn out, tune out. And there's a lot of, um, you know, showmanship and uh, almost turning it into, like, a sports uh, analogy where it's like you're with us or against us and you know i i'm old enough to remember um you know when we've had the the great kind of triumvirate of uh news broadcasters um on the nightly news and you know i think uh we're missing that and it's uh, gonna have long-lasting effects and we need to figure out how to um 
you know, talk with our children and each other about um, about these challenges because I don't really see it with this as a country. Is has there ever been a time and and I have to set this up a little bit the the uh, breach of the Capitol on January sixth, people were were chanting and carrying signs that um, you know that that. Uh, restated this this notion that the election had been stolen although some 60 court cases and multiple audits in states around the country said no it was pretty much just a regular election there were glitches here and there but nothing that that would you know change the outcome but i couldn't help watching these these people carrying the signs you know saying you know give us back our election, uh, you know, don't steal the election. And and I'm thinking, but wait a minute, they're, they're shouting and screaming something that is completely false. Right. Has that, has that happened before around the country or around the world where somebody has gotten a notion like this idea that the election was fraudulent and then went out and demonstrated on basically a, a, a faulty premise. Well, well and I, I'm, I'm in Thailand, and right next door is Cambodia, and I spent some time there and some, some, some time working for a newspaper there. And Hun Sen has been in office uh, pretty much since the Khmer Rouge, uh, I think for about 40 years now. And he and many autocrats around the world used to be uh, intimidated and their funding would be threatened and there was tremendous political and economic pressure in order to uh, engage in uh, civil rights and human rights and have fair elections and a free press. During the Trump administration, I can tell you, Hun Sen would point to the United States as an example, uh, quoting Donald Trump saying, the press is the enemy of the people. Of course, the famous statement by, by Joseph Stalin so that's happening all, all over the world with leaders pointing to the United States as justification for autocracy. There's one quote um, that made its way in the book from this uh, uh, conservative scholar um, from James Madison who said, a popular government without popular information or the means of acquiring it is but a prologue to a farce or a tragedy or perhaps both. So I think, you know, in civics, we, we get the feeling that it's a nice thing to have, aren't we lucky? But what they were saying is that if you don't have access to quality information and the means of acquiring it, forget it. Literally, the democracy is doomed. And an important point that you made about, about fake news, you know, what Trump did was to distort the actual definition of, of fake news. Fake news means something comes up on your screen you're expecting it to be real news, uh, real journalism vetted by editors with the kind of journalist, journalistic standards that you used to. But instead, it's Tony the blogger who created a nice website and presented something to you or, or some foreign government or some political organization so that it looks like news, but it's fake. It's not really news. And what Trump tried to do successfully to uh, to most conservatives in the United States is to say no fake news is not that fake news is whatever i don't like if i don't like something <laughs> being reported on especially 
something critical of me, that's fake news. And once that becomes entrenched in the culture, it's all over. You know, uh, Donald Trump was just not competent enough to be an effective uh, fascist. But someone in the future might be more competent. So that notion of the uh, of an informed populace and the notion of media literacy, as 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 Adam said, and critical thinking and and understanding how to source information. In a lot of the interviews that we did, people pointed to that as absolutely critical to a liberal democracy uh, or to the uh, 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 notion of sustaining a democracy. In the research that you did, and, and I'll, I'll just kind of restate that there's 40-some-odd uh, interviews in the book, um, looking at, at various uh, uh, protests and, and aspects of activism, is the, in, in the wake of that, do you come away with um, a sense that there is a roadmap to success and a path to failure when it comes to political activism, demonstrations, protests, etc.? What we tried to say in the opening of the book is that um, this is not a textbook, but it's a gathering of stories. And I think uh, each person, uh, I think Michael Lewis once said that when he writes a book, he leaves a reader-sized hole in every book for people to interpret. So as opposed to saying, do these four things, and by the way, in the conclusion, there's a lot of rich, detailed information about what we saw as the patterns and the conclusions, then asking the reader to make their own conclusions. Because from each of these stories, whether it's the the Selma to Montgomery march for, for the Voting Rights Act or the Arab Spring or the South Korean Candlelight Revolution or what have you, in each of these stories, the reader will, will take from that uh, something uh, to, to utilize. Having said that, do I believe that a serious activist who wants to know how to be effective can read that book and have an absolute personal roadmap for where they want to go, I think we strongly believe that that's the case. But I think that each reader will draw from those stories something differently. You know, when I um, was start, starting to brainstorm all this with Brian, um, part of the reason why we both felt compelled by this topic was because we felt it hadn't really been addressed before. Um, you know, there's various books on dissent, and there's various books on kind of, you know, protests, but usually, or specific movements, but usually it was only like a single one. So, like, there's lots of books written about women's suffrage. There's lots of books written about civil rights. Um, but very few of them um, compared them. And very few of them actually had original research and original interviews. Most of them uh, were kind of based on uh, other other research that people had done. And, um, you know, starting out, I was pretty, um, I guess, skeptical um, that I hadn't seen a lot of uh, protests be effective recently or activism be effective. Um, and, you know, going through the process with Brian, I became more optimistic myself, uh, which was our goal. Um, and I hope others will take away from that because... Uh, while not everything has uh, been successful, 
there are enough examples uh, from recent history um, that hopefully will inspire the next generation. Do um, successful uh, protests and, and activism have clear goals? I know we always see people. We got to have change. We got to have change. But are are they um, are they clear about what they want that change to be? It's very dependent. Of, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think what Adam uh, emphasized early on, as we were sorting out what the conclusions were, is that if you don't have a focused objective, um, then you're going to have a very rough road, and that that was one of the clear conclusions for us. Now, it may be that your objective or what you think the real issue is evolves and solidifies over time, no doubt. And, and that happened with, with many of these. But, you know, with the, the, the Selma march, you know, we, we think about it in terms of civil rights, and we want to have this march, we want to have uh, Dr. King make the speech. No, they wanted the, the Civil Rights Act to be enacted to protect voting rights for the first time for African-Americans in 1965. And within weeks of the end of that march, uh, Johnson introduced that law, and, and, and you have the 1965 Voting Rights Act. So very specific objectives will get you where you want to go. And without objectives, it may be that it'll, it'll evolve over time and you get there. I think many of the um, uh, chapters talk about uh, a shift in strategies, like with the women's suffrage movement, uh, but uh, it was very clear. In fact, there's one very dramatic moment in the in the Ukraine chapter, um, which I saw myself and video coming out of those Euromaidan uh, protests in Kiev, where Vladimir Klitschko, the former heavyweight boxing champion, who is who then became the mayor of Kiev, but at the time was the head of a political party, said, "Hey, great news." We just negotiated, and we have all these wins that we wanted from from the, the, the head of Ukraine. And then this uh, former veteran who had been fighting against these uh, uh, secret police for, for weeks uh, in, the, in the snow, he grabbed the microphone from Klitschko, and he said, No, we will not accept this. We want the president to be out. And until he's out and, and, and until we get this, this, and this, we will not stop fighting. And the next morning, the president flew out of the country and never came back, and, and they got that objective. Without that guy grabbing the microphone and clarifying in that moment what they really wanted, uh, they wouldn't have achieved it. I think that's one of the challenges that I've seen living in New York is there's lots of protests, um, but it's not always clear. I think there's been such a focus um, either from organizers or from reporters when they, when they talk about these movements. They're always focused on, like, the turnout. How many people came? And while, yes, that is an important um, number to be aware of, it doesn't really say what's happening as a result. And so I've seen this in particular with, uh, like, the environmental movement. Uh, there's been multiple marches around the climate. And when you go to march, um, or if you go to see a demonstration, you'll see people carrying signs, and they will talk about you know whatever issue they're they're focused on. the The point of a demonstration or a march is to call attention to an issue. It doesn't necessarily lead to a successful resolution. Um, that comes from you know lobbying, 
or a boycott to pressure, you know, a particular organization or, you know, some other movement. Um, we found regularly um, a single a single march um, just doesn't lead to results. You need to do it over and over and follow through with other uh, initiatives. Well, one of the things that comes to my mind as we're talking about this is the uh, the Occupy Wall Street movement. And, you know, it's it's difficult to tell what came out of that, but one thing that certainly came out of that was the notion of 1% and 99% that became part of the lexicon. Yep. Oh, absolutely. And again, um, uh, several of our, well, two of our interviews, uh, Ty Gitlin and Kali Lawson, uh, said there is no Bernie Sanders candidacy without that. And Bernie, Bernie Sanders' candidacy, like him or not, uh, along with Occupy, elevated that, where, where that is on the right and the left. I mean, a lot of Trump supporters... Um, you know, have this same sort of resentment against elites. I'm not sure how well-focused and, and directed it is, but um, Occupy was very important in putting that in the map. And I, Adam and I have different views on, on, on Occupy in terms of how you evaluate it, it, its success. I mean, this is a small magazine called Adbusters out of Vancouver, Canada, uh, who basically wrote an article and then... Uh, uh, put out a hashtag and said 20,000 people should gather and occupy Wall Street and and people uh, put it out there and they were hoping that they gave specific suggestions you know for example uh, an Obama uh, commission on on uh, the influence of money in in politics they had they were hoping that would be easily and uh, quickly taken up but it broke down and and so there was never a real focus, and that may very well be why, while it dissipated, while at the same time, um, someone like uh, Gitlin uh, at, at Columbia uh, says, you know, uh, there were hundreds of Occupy uh, groups in California alone, and there was one, I think, Riverside, University of California Riverside professor who studied the effects, so there were lots of effects that were not seen on the front pages, but yeah, in terms of, uh, as with these other movements, one very focused objective, we won't give up despite failures till we get there, that did not happen with Occupy. And yet it was proposed by, you know, someone within the organization. And so that's really interesting to read through that because I think as people kind of were aware of the movement at the time, I don't think that they all saw these other you know, perspectives, some of which uh, came to light and others which which didn't take hold. And so that, for me, was a really uh, educational part of uh, this process. Well, Brian, Adam, I have to take another break here. Um, can you stick around so we can wrap this up a little bit? Sure. Can't, can't wait to hear the, the public service announcements. <laughs> okay, then. Go uh, for, uh, for the listeners, uh if you're listening to us on uh, 92.1 FM, Our Voices Radio in Flint, they are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions, and my good friend Paul Herring, we're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well, so don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse. We'll have more with uh, Brian uh, Gruber and Adam Edwards, the authors of Surmountable, 
when we return. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. If you are sick with COVID-19 or think you might have it, take steps to help protect other people from getting sick. Stay home except to get medical care. Call the doctor before visiting. Separate yourself from others who live with you. Wear a mask to protect others. Cover your coughs and sneezes with a tissue and clean your hands right away. Avoid sharing items with other people in your home. This includes things like towels and bedding. Be sure dishes are washed in hot water or the dishwasher before anyone else uses them. Stay aware of how you feel. If you start to have difficulty breathing or if you are worried about your health, call your doctor. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom. Most of the music you hear on the Tom Sumner program is provided by local artists. Tune in Fridays for live music and conversation with some of the area's most talented singers, songwriters, and performers. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. The Tom Sumner Program, celebrating the rich talent pool from Flint, Genesee County, and throughout Michigan. common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the bath. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses. And where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County. Where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner 
Program.com. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And hey, welcome back, everybody. We're talking with Brian Gruber and Adam Edwards, the uh, co-authors of a book called Surmountable, How Citizens from Selma to Seoul Changed the World. Brian, Adam, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Thank you. Um, you know, we're just scratching the surface. This is, uh, uh, you know, in, in some ways an all-encompassing book looking at uh, activism and, and protests and movements and so on. Um, but yet, it's it's a sampling, a large sampling, uh, you know. But a sampling nonetheless. How did you decide which which things you wanted to pursue and include in the book? So that's a funny story. Um, originally, uh, we were looking at dividing the movement into different eras. Uh, so, understanding that a lot of movements gain steam and are kind of their success is determined by their uh, media awareness. Uh, we looked at like the age of newspapers and television and the internet. Um, we decided against that just based on like the, the interviews that we're able to get. Um, but understanding that really the, the modern activist movement doesn't really start until women's suffrage um, 100 years ago. Um, and so that put like a nice uh, frame around what we were trying to achieve. Um, and, you know, obviously there's major highlights around women, uh, women's suffrage and, and civil rights, but there are a lot of uh, lesser known um, movements that we wanted to highlight. One was the Bonus Army, um, which comprised World War I veterans um, lobbying basically for just compensation during the Great Depression, um, which was not a very well-known story. Um, one also that I wanted to highlight was uh, something called the SOPA-PIPA bill. Um, I don't know if anyone remembers that now, um, but in the about you know 10 years ago, uh, there was a copyright law that was being considered, and uh, a lot of various groups banded together um, and pursued something that they framed as the internet blackout. So Wikipedia, Google, uh, went black for a day to show the potential outcome of that bill. And so really, as uh, we began to research um, a lot of different movements and, and understanding where the story might lead us, uh, our goal was to pick out um, certain ones that would either resonate with people, show a cross-section of uh, various uh, successes and outcomes, um, and we're, we're quite happy with the results. We, uh, we went further than we had originally planned, and we looked at three different international movements, as Brian uh, referenced earlier, um, because, you know, even though uh, we might not hear about them as much here uh, in the U.S., uh, we do have a lot to learn um, from, uh, from citizens overseas as well. Adam, just out of curiosity, how did this become a book and not a uh, documentary film? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow. Well, I mean, that's not to say that we couldn't do a documentary. I think there is a lot of rich uh, material here for one. Um, but I think a lot of that came from um, 
you know, talking with Brian, reading his earlier book, which was amazing, um, and just understanding kind of the, the task. I mean, I think one of the reasons why this uh, type of book has never been done before is because just the, uh, you know, expense and the, the challenge of doing so. You know, if you, if you think about research on activism, you know, probably some are done as uh, PhD dissertations. Um, but Brian went into the field. He traveled around the world, 15 cities, four continents across two months. That's a lot. Um, that's a lot to grapple with. And um, very happy with the results. And so um, it uh, we felt it lent itself to a book. Um, but certainly, would uh, if anyone's interested in doing a documentary, let me know. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's. Uh, I feel like we've just really just scratched the surface, Brian. Um, there is a lot to be told in this story, and I, I'm not sure if that's the reason why there's never been a book like this before or not, but um, but the book is a, a continued outgrowth of, of some of the work that you've already done, Brian, and I... Um, you know, obviously the book is uh, surmountable, how citizens from Selma to Seoul changed the world. Um, I, I guess what I need to do at this point, as I always do with guests, is is give you both an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about, but also about both of you and your work, past, present, and future. Um, Brian, do you have a website? I, I do have a website, uh, and Adam will give the surmountable website. Uh, my website is at uh, grubermedia.com. And um, briefly, I uh, started out as the first head of marketing for C-SPAN and hosted call-in shows and started something called Fora TV that took public forums from around the world and put them online for the first time. The book that both of you refer to uh, was called War of the After Party, which was similar, circumnavigating the world to scenes of the last 50 years of U.S. military interventions. And what I learned there is that a sense of place is very important. You hear about Saddam Hussein dropping chemical weapons on his own people. But I went to Halabja, which I realized, oh, it's close to the Iranian border. And by giving a sense of place in the storytelling and even walking around these places and talking to people uh, on the street, you're giving um, not only a geographic sense, but you're allowing fresh voices to speak. So yes, we went to experts for the interviews, but also we talked to fruit vendors and travel agents and bus drivers and people on the street who gave a different perspective as witnesses to history. Well, um, Adam, did you want to uh, share sure. the website? Yeah, so uh, you can find out more at surmountable.org. Um, and you can, of course, order the book on Amazon and other retailers. Um, we talked a little bit about how I got into this at the beginning, um, but just a little more about me is that uh, I've been in marketing for 20 years, um, but in a, in a unique field uh, called search engine optimization, SEO. And um, that is not the easiest field uh, to go into. Um, <laughs> it's not taught very uh, much in universities still, um, and really it's consulting. Um, and so what we've had to do uh, in, in that industry is 
get people together and come to consensus because a lot of people think it's like you're the you're the owner of the website, um, but actually you're an analyst and you have to you know convince uh, marketing people and IT people uh, to come to agreement along with the designers and creatives, and that can be a challenge. And so um, what I saw in that career field is that um, you have to bring people together. And that's what uh, really interests me about activism, too, is because you have to do the same thing. Um, Brian Gruber and Adam Munir Edwards, uh, co-authors of Surmountable, How Citizens from Selma to Seoul Changed the World. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you, Tom. privilege. Thank you so much. Take care. Take care. More of the Tom Sumner program is straight ahead. Old Jack Russell was a real cruel dude. Nothing in the world that he wouldn't do. When it came to business, he was very shrewd. Old Jack Russell knew what to do. He knew just what to do. Always kept a gun right by his side. Didn't care if you were wanted dead or alive. Ready to cut you down to size. Old Jack Russell, ready to rise. Cause he knew what he had. Looking for a cat named Slim Jim Brown Knew right away what was going down Old Jack had his familiar frown And I knew what I had to do Slim Jim Brown was at the end Sitting on a stool drinking red-eyed gin Looked at me when I came on in You know who's coming, look out Jim And he knew what he had Do 
you pilots get off of my lawn. We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here. <laughs>